Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Thank you for listening to the Jefferson County News for the week of July 20th, 2023. My name is Gregory Haddock. For today's reading, we will be covering the following stories. Arvada celebrates its newest park by Lillian Fugle for the Arvada Press. Arvada City Council votes to allow pocket neighborhoods by Lillian Fugle for the Arvada Press. School Board approves pay increase for Jeffco educators for the Jeffco transcript by Jane Reuter. Golden Hills becomes first resident-owned mobile home park in Jeffco. Residents excited to preserve affordable housing control their own futures by Corinne Westman for the Golden Transcript and following up with various articles. Golden Hills becomes first resident-owned mobile home park in Jeffco. Residents excited to preserve affordable housing, control their own futures. By Corinne Westman. After a two-year journey with lots of ups and downs, Golden Hill residents now own their mobile home park. On July 11th, the Golden Hills Mobile Home Park Co-op and its partners closed on an 85 million-dollar deal to buy the property from California-based operator Harmony Communities, which has owned it since late 2021. Golden Hills is now the first resident-owned community, or ROC, among Jefferson County's mobile home parks. We will have control of our own destinies, 20-year resident Art Irwin said. Joyce Tanner, co-op president, emphasized how this wouldn't have been possible without her fellow residents and co-op board members and their nonprofit and government partners. There were times when I didn't know if we'd ever get to this day, she continued. And here it is. The City of Golden, in partnership with Jeffco, contributed $2 million of its American Rescue Plan Act funds towards the purchase. City Manager Scott Vargo explained how it's a forgivable loan, and the city will only receive accrued interest or repayment if the property goes into default or is sold. While Jeffco couldn't contribute directly because of financial complications, it de-obligated the city from paying $1 million for a separate project, Vargo explained. That allowed Golden to contribute $2 million in ARPA funds instead of the initial $1 million it committed in January 2022. Quote, it was a creative effort by both the governments to support affordable housing within the community, he continued. Additionally, Tanner said local nonprofits Golden United and Thistle, both champions for affordable housing, were crucial in helping Golden Hills become resident-owned. According to Tim Townsend, Thistle's ROC program director, lending partner ROC USA Capital, assembled the loan package, including the remaining $6.5 million. 
Golden Hills must pay back the full amount, which includes a $1.1 million construction loan with 2.5% interest. Residents and co-op board members Valerie Dillon and Will Gregg see it as a worthy investment in their community's future. Both are first-time homeowners at Golden Hills, and they pay rent on their respective lots. Despite the name, their homes aren't mobile. So, if lot rents go too high, people will be priced out of homes they own. Thus, as an ROC, residents will have greater long-term housing security, Dillon and Greg described. Because 90% of Golden Hills household incomes are at or below 80% of an area media income, Mayor Laura Weinberg stressed how important it is to preserve, quote, naturally occurring affordable housing. As community members have discussed, mobile home parks are the largest source of unsubsidized affordable housing, with many residents on fixed incomes, like seniors, veterans, and people with disabilities. This kind of collaboration, hard work, and love of community... Across multiple partners is what Golden is all about, Weinberg said in a July 11th City Press release. The two-year journey. In early 2021, Golden Hills was owned by Blue Sky Communities, which Tanner described as more of a mom-and-pop style owner. Lot rents for most residents were about $525 to $600 a month. In spring 2021, residents received notice that Blue Sky intended to sell the community. And as Tanner described, no one knew what was happening. Golden United volunteers connected them with Thistle, which set them on the ROC path. Most residents formed the co-op, which then made two offers to Blue Sky. However, it sold the park to Harmony Communities in late 2021. Tanner said the co-op made an offer to Harmony soon after, but, quote, Things didn't work out. Lot rents went up to $795 a month in February 2022 and then to $995 a month in February 2023. Then Harmony informed the residents it had received an offer, but the co-op wasn't in, quote, opportunity to purchase mode, Tanner stated. So it got back to work again with Thistle and put together another offer, its fourth overall. This time, it was accepted. With the deal signed and finalized this month, residents are celebrating becoming Jeffco's first ROC. Being resident-owned now, lot rents will stabilize and residents will make decisions on their own park, Tanner described. They've also established community rules and bylaws. Residents can join the co-op if they wish, but it's not mandatory. While it was a long and difficult journey, residents felt the community had become stronger for it. Neighbors came together for a common good, and friendships blossomed among residents who never really knew each other before, the co-op board members described. The work ahead. The residents can't rest on their laurels, though, as there's plenty of work to do. During the pre-development engineering surveys, the co-op found the property had more than $1 million in infrastructure needs, such as replacing sewer and gas lines. While these costs were included in the overall loan package, it will impact lot rents going forward, Tanner explained. 
Between that, the offer the co-op was competing against, the overall costs of the real estate, lot rents will go up again in February. Tanner said it'll be a little under $1,100 a month. However, the co-op members voted unanimously to go ahead with the purchase, knowing lot rents would be impacted, at least initially. In fact, Tanner said it wouldn't have been worse if Golden and Jeffco hadn't helped. The residents won't be alone as Thistle stays on as coach and support system for the next 10 years, Townsend explained. The nonprofit will help Golden Hills review its financials and, quote, stay on track, especially through this first year, he said. Townsend added how Golden Hills is Thistle's eighth ROC in Colorado with the ninth expected later this summer. He hoped Golden Hills would become a model for other communities that want to become ROCs. Reflecting on the last two years, the co-op board members said there are numerous individuals and groups to thank for all their support. Along with the aforementioned ones, they highlighted state legislators who passed protections for mobile home park residents. Seeing the different people who have supported us throughout this process has been heartwarming and amazing, Tanner continued. This is finally coming to fruition, where we can live with housing security. School Board Approves Pay Increase for Jeffco Educators by Jane Reuter. <clears throat> Eligible Jefferson County educators will get a 5.25% pay increase and more money for medical benefits in the upcoming school year. Two of several benefits included in a recently approved agreement between the Jefferson County Education Association, or JCEA, and the Jefferson County School Board. Most educators will receive an additional salary bump based on the amount of time they've worked in the district. Despite those increases, JCEA President Brooke Williams said Jefferson County teacher salaries are low compared to many surrounding districts. Our goal is always to ensure we can keep the best educators in Jeffco to serve our students, said Williams, who is also an art teacher in the district. Though we were hopeful to secure a deal that would keep our district more competitive, among others in the Denver metro area, we are not done fighting for the competitive compensation loyal educators deserve. We made it clear to our district that they need to reward our educators with m the most experience, and we desperately need Jeffco to commit to invest new funding into its employees. According to Colorado Public Radio, Westminster, Cherry Creek, and Adams, 12 five-star districts, all offering higher starting salaries than Jeff Jefferson County. The starting salary in Jeffco for the upcoming academic year is about 52700 Jeffco is also struggling with the impact of declining enrollment, caused in large part by a falling birth rate. Those changes led to a November 2022 decision to close 16 elementary schools and a more recent board vote to consolidate a middle and high school. School funding is tied to enrollment, so the declines have put financial pressure on the district at a time in which educators say higher pay is critical. With those factors at play, board member Susan Miller said she feels the district is attempting to strike a difficult balance.
At the end of the day, from the taxpayers and parents' point of view, the fact remains that over the past two years, district spending on teachers' total, co- total compensation has increased by 18%, while achievement results have continued to decline and learning losses have not been recovered, she said. We have limited financial resources and they are getting more shallow. I am concerned we are spiraling with our financial investment. We're going to have to figure out how to talk to our community about that investment and the return on that investment, she continued. Board member Paula Reed praised those who negotiated the agreement but agreed the funding formula makes the process tough. The JCEA and Jeffco have had over five decades of negotiating together, and I think it's a history we can be really proud of, she said. I think we remain in this sort of tense place between what we are able to offer and what our educators deserve for the work they do and being competitive in the metro area. I think we are going to have to do some work as a district to figure out the revenue side so we can ease that tension a little bit and have more room for the compensation piece of negotiation, she continued. But I think we're all trying to pull in the same direction, which feels really good. Jeffco teachers said the issues of both compensation and academic performance are multi-layered and linked. A real concern of JCEA educators is the increasing cost of living in the Denver area, especially in Jefferson County, said JCEA Vice President Dale Munholland, who's also a Pomona High School social studies teacher. Furthermore, over the next decade, there's going to be an exodus of teachers from the classroom due to retirement, as well as teachers leaving the profession early because of the increasing demands and stress. Compounding this problem is that fewer and fewer young people are going into education due to low pay and increasing workload. Munholland added that if Jeffco wants to increase achievement, it cannot be done with overcrowded classrooms led by overworked teachers. It can only be done by keeping and attracting educators with a compensation package that keeps up with surrounding districts, Munholland said. JCEA treasurer and Golden High School English teacher Andrew Gittner thanked the school board for the added compensation. When I started working at Jeffco in 2014, I was paid just over $29,000 per year, he said. The only place I could afford to live was not legally allowed to be called a bedroom. I'm grateful that the majority of Jeffco parents in the community have voted for school board directors who care enough to invest in educators and students. Valuing educators less than every comparable metro district is not a solution to any problem. Highlights of the agreement include a 5.25% cost of living increase and added $20 per month toward the medical plan of the employees choosing. An increase from 1% to 2% to the stipend for educators who work in Title I schools. A class size relief fund for classes that exceed contractual guidelines. This will allow the district to provide paraeducator support or hire another teacher when students are in large classes. The expansion of non-contact days for planning time to include middle school educators. And additional stipends for career and technical education and elementary art music and PE teachers. Arvada City Council votes to allow pocket neighborhoods 
by Lillian Fugle. Arvada City Council has voted to add a zoning designation to the Arvada Land Development Code that will allow for pocket neighborhoods in Arvada. The change, which was voted on at the July 10th City Council meeting, creates a new kind of zoning called Commercial Neighborhood, or CN. This does not immediately rezone any areas of Arvada. Instead, developers can submit proposals for businesses within residential areas, which will be evaluated on a case-by-case basis. The proposal to allow for this zoning designation was passed 6-0, with Mayor Mark Williams absent from the meeting. The creation of CN zoning laws allows for a wide variety of businesses, such as restaurants, bars, offices, retail, and more, to move into established residential areas. However, there are some restrictions set for businesses that try to move in. Lot sizes are restricted to a range between 10,000 square feet and one acre, with a maximum height of 28 feet. Hours for businesses are also restricted. Bars are only allowed to operate from 7 a.m. to 9 p.m., while restaurants may be open from 6 a.m. to 11 p.m. Before this change, there was no kind of zoning allowance for this kind of development. However, there were several similar developments, like GB's Fish and Chips and the State Farm Office on Ralston Road, that were allowed through major modifications. Our action today is not to rezone anything, said City Council Member Randy Mormon. It's just another tool in the toolbox. When businesses do move into residential areas, residents may benefit from an increase in walkability and a decrease in traffic. Instead of having to drive to businesses, they'll be able to walk there instead. City Council also emphasized that rezoning will be considered on a case-by-case basis. We don't want people fearing the worst. There won't be allowed biker bars moving in, said City Council Member Lauren Simpson. This is more about community placemaking, creating places we can walk to. City Council Member Bob Pfeiffer said that this change was about creating a sense of place in Arvada. I think this is a great thing for our community to have these options, Pfeiffer said. Arvada celebrates its newest park by Lillian Fugley. Arvada's newest park was filled with music on July 13th. The source of that music was a drum circle, part of the name naming celebration for Little Raven Park. The park, located to the north of Van Bibber Creek Trail and southeast of Intersection Ward Road and 58th Avenue, is the first in town to honor the area's indigenous heritage. The name for the park was proposed by Jennifer Dampf, who wanted to honor Arvada's history in a more inclusive way. It honors Chief Little Raven, a southern Arapaho chief who was known as a peacemaker between local tribes and white settlers. When it came time to name this park, we heard loud and clear from the community and from our city council that it was important to choose a name that honors the native and indigenous peoples of this region said Arvada's Director of Vibrant Communities and Neighborhood, Inessa Janes. During the naming celebration, multiple community leaders from the Cheyenne and Arapaho tribes spoke about the park's name. We were always peaceful people. We always wanted to be one 
with the land, with nature, with ourselves, said Reggie Wasana, governor of the Cheyenne and Arapaho tribes. We do appreciate all the city leaders, city managers, the city council people for opening up their minds and saying, you know what? There were people here before these gold rush people were here and what happened to those people. And it's a shameful past. The drum circle played several songs, including the Eagle song and a song named after chief little Raven. After several speeches, gifts were exchanged between Arvada city representatives and tribal representatives, and a ribbon was cut in front of the park sign. The ribbon was cut by several descendants of Chief Little Raven. Local voices, like I used to, Jerry Fabianic, columnist. As I've aged, I've wryly commented on, as you might have about your own, my diminishing physical capabilities. Plaintively decrying I can't do such and such, running, skiing, climbing, like I used to. And like you might have. I've occasionally spouted George Bernard Shaw's lament that youth is wasted on the young. Our bodies usually peak in our mid to late 20s. By our early 30s, muscles start to weaken, and the hard work of staying fit becomes increasingly challenging. From then on, it's an exercise to exercise, an inexorable decline, with the going getting tougher as our capabilities ebb. Like every living thing, we humans have a shelf life. Though I can't speak for other sentient beings, I believe that as we mature, like them, we grow wiser. In conjunction with that, our perspective and attitude about our abilities and interests usually grow. For those relishing and thriving on physical activity, dedication to keeping fit and maintaining strength deepens. But paradoxically, that mature attitude sets in shortly after our physical growth spurt ends and our bodies begin to decline. Then, as we approach 40, the dreaded marker for middle age, fear sets in because we know we're at the point when unpleasant stuff e.g. bifocals, seriously kicks in, and we have become keenly aware that people eventually die. The coup de grace is that we know, too, there is nothing we can do about either. There are no exceptions. In the not-too-distant future, we know the bell will toll not for thee, but for me. It's kind of depressing to think about, but as is it is with much in life, it's a matter of perspective. If one looks at having been born, given life, not as a right, but as a privilege, that gloomy perspective can flip. One of the wisest insights I gained is that life is a journey. Like any journey, it can be a blasé one, a prepackaged, sanitized, structured cruise in which the traveler follows the herd and dutifully does what is expected of them or it can be an extraordinary one in which they follow their own path. When they do that, they lick their chops, not at finding the anticipated, but at chancing upon or discovering the unanticipated. If one chooses the latter path and separates from their this-is-what-is-expected-of-you world, crosses the threshold and ventures into the unknown, psychic energy transforms them. They become attuned, even addicted, to that life. 
In time, they realize there's no quitting, no going back to the safety net of their launch point and birth tribe, and that their adventure will end with their last breath. And they're good with that. When they reach their elderly years, however, they face a conundrum. It slowly dawns on them that they are slowing down and can't do stuff like they used to. Their problem is they know no other way. Despite their declining physical abilities, the siren of journey still calls to their soul. It beckons them forth. Whether it's the old man in the sea or the old man of the mountain, their place, the sea, the mountain, the desert, or wherever the place might be, has been etched into and become an indelible aspect of their being. One of my favorite stories is Jeremiah Johnson, the Robert Redford film about being a mountain man. Each time I watch it, I am awestruck, not only at the magnificent magnificence of the setting and the superb performances rendered by Redford, Will Gear, Bearclaw, and the other actors, but also by the story itself, its tale and structure. The storyline follows the hero's path from beginning to end. The last character he encounters is paints his shirt red the crow chief he encountered after he initially made his way into the mountains. Watching it now through the lens of an old man of the mountain, I am struck by the ending. Though it doesn't end ambiguously, it wraps only sort of conclusively. Yes, he's been accepted and forgiven for his sacrilegious trespassing, but then what? Can he return to trapping and live out his days doing that? Where does he go? He can never return to civilization, nor does he want to, and he's alone. All those he met and accompanied him on his journey are gone. So how does he spend his remaining years? It's intriguing to consider, consider, but the answer is really quite simple. He goes on and continues to do everything like he used to. Maybe more slowly and not as well, but with the same spirits. Elan. He approached life when young, strong, and full of moxie, as it is with me. So I can't do it, ski, run, move, rocks in my garden, and so on, like I used to, but I can go on like I used to and do many of the many activities I used to. Slower, but with the same excitement, thrill, and enthusiasm I had when I started my journey, just because my body is slowing and falling apart, doesn't mean I have to. Jerry Fabianic is the author of Sisyphus Wins and Food for Thought, Essays on Mind and Spirit. He lives in Georgetown. Thank you for listening to the Jefferson County News. My name is Gregory Haddock. Your regularly scheduled program is not available at this time. Please enjoy this special broadcast on AINC. Thank you for joining us for Denver Metro News. My name is Dave Dell. Today I'll be reading articles from the Denver Voice, Denverite, and Westward. From the Denver Voice, I'll be reading Skylark Lounge Holds Its Own Against Denver's More Famous Venues by Robert Davis. From Denverite, I'll be reading Casa Bonita is Losing Employees Before They Really Even Open by Kevin Beatty. And Aurora Says It Won't Help Denver Police in Big Moments. What Does That Mean for Day-to-Day -day Policing by Tony Gorman. From Westward, I'll be reading Fairmount Cemetery Now Offering Pet Loss Services by Amber Taufin. And 
Denver researchers find new ways that city surroundings worsen people's health by Benito L. Kelty. I'll finish up the hour with other articles from Westward. This first article is from the Denver Voice. Skylark Lounge holds its own against Denver's more famous venues by Robert Davis. Many musicians dream of playing at Denver's famous venues like Red Rocks Amphitheater, Mission Ballroom, and the historic Paramount Theater, but locals say several smaller venues are just as noteworthy, if not more so. One such place is the Skylark Lounge in the Baker neighborhood. The Skylark first opened in 1943 at 58 South Broadway as a bar for local workers. It stayed in the same building for almost 60 years before moving down the street to its current location at 140 South Broadway in 2003, according to city property records. Locals know Skylark for its well-stocked horseshoe bar and the checkerboard floor that decorates the upstairs concert hall known as the Bobcat Club. The bar was put up for sale in May 2020 by its previous owner, Scott Heron, who had purchased the bar for about $82,000 in 1998. Heron told Westward at the time that he didn't think the bar would sell anytime soon because the coronavirus pandemic was just getting started. But the sales tag caught the eye of one well-connected local, Bob Ashby, who has been living in Baker for almost 20 years. Ashby contacted his longtime friend, Nathaniel Rateliff, yes, the one who makes music with the night sweats, and the two formed a partnership of investors to take over the venue in 2021, Westward reported. It was kind of a no-brainer, Ashby told Westward. We both love this neighborhood. It's been really important to us, and we really want to add something back to it. After some light renovations, the Skylark reopened in January of 2022 and has provided both upstart musicians and touring acts a place to perform for a Denver audience. The venue hosts live music most nights of the week, and ticket prices often range between $5 and $15, according to Skylark's website. Rachel McQuag, a local musician who performs under the pseudonym Lonely Choir, told Denver Voice in an interview that the Skylark offers an encouraging environment that makes it easy to book recurring gigs there. One way it promotes that kind of environment is by separating the live music from the bar crowd. When Skylark first opened, the live music stage was tucked into a cramped corner of the room, which made it uncomfortable to play and easy for the bar crowd to tune out the entertainers. Now the live music stage is upstairs in the Bobcat Club, where the room is oriented around the stage, and concert goers have their own bar. It's just one of those places you walk into and you see it's a peaceful and safe environment, McQuag said. McQuag added that the attention local acts receive from Skylark's sound technicians during gigs is another thing that separates it from other venues in Denver. McQuag said she has played at venues where it felt like the staff was rushing her up on the stage to sing into a half-working microphone for a half hour before getting rushed back out the door. She added that those kinds of situations don't happen at Skylark. The Skylark is definitely a place that has pushed me to continue to want to play around Denver and to pursue music as a career, McQuag said. Warren Bregman, the vocalist for local funk rap group Coast to Ghost, told Denver Voice that the Skylark helped his band network with other local acts, get exposure to new fan bases, and pay their rent on time. 
Bregman added that Skylark stands out among the other venues along Broadway because of how close it is to neighborhood restaurants like Voodoo Donuts and Illegal Pete's. That makes it easy for local acts to get a good bite to eat after they perform, Bregman said, and for concert goers to continue their night out after seeing a concert. They know how to cultivate a vibe at Skylark, Bregman said. It's a great spot to grab some drinks and see a show, and it has this institution-like identity here in Denver. It's really a hidden gem. You can check out who will be performing at Skylark by visiting their website at skylarklounge.com events. The next two articles are from Denverite. Casa Bonita is losing employees before they really even open by Kevin Beatty. Corey Blair was absolutely floored to land a job at Casa Bonita. The career bartender grew up in Denver and his family brought him to the West Colfax landmark long before South Park introduced the world to the quirky immersive space. Trey Parker and Matt Stone, the creators of the show, had purchased the restaurant after COVID shut it down and its former owners filed for bankruptcy. Coloradans, along with people all over the country, marveled at the rebirth with anticipation. And Blair rode that wave of excitement. That first walkthrough on the first day, I was literally like a kid in the candy store, he told us. It was so exciting. Everything is awesome in there. They've done a fantastic job with the whole renovation. They've done a fantastic job with the food. But the nostalgia and hype didn't last long. The restaurant, originally slated to open in May, has languished in an extended soft open phase, which has limited employee hours. Management also changed employees' pay structures, cutting out all tips and opting instead for hourly wages. Between that pressure and what Blair described as a general lack of transparency from his higher-ups, People have begun to leave, and some of those who remain have begun to organize. On July 12th, members of the newly formed We Are Team CASA group issued a letter to management. They demanded clarity on the timeline for a full opening, a change in pay structure, a direct line of communication between staff and managers, and the opportunity for fired workers, who they say were let go for not signing a revised contract, to get their jobs back. It's frustrating to see us have to go this route with the way that employees are being paid and the suffocation of the lack of hours, Blair said. Blair was one of 50-ish bartenders hired last spring. Casa Bonita currently has 50 open bartender positions. When he first got the job, Blair said he was promised minimum wage plus tips, a standard deal for front-of-house restaurant workers. That was more or less his arrangement at the 16th Street Mall Hard Rock Cafe, which pays enough to keep his bills covered before it permanently closes. He said some colleagues quit jobs to be available for Casa Bonita. They wanted us to be there full-time, 40 hours a week. We're going to be so busy that you're not going to know what to do with yourself. And we were all excited, he said. So everybody, a lot of people, tried to make it work. He said he and his new colleagues knew they'd have to wait through a warm-up period until they could really make their bread, but they never expected it to last so long. We were all comfortable with understanding that it was going to be a slow, soft opening, he told us. It's coming on to two and a half, three months. Then, late last month, managers called everyone into a meeting, asking they sign new contracts to fundamentally alter how they were paid. Management cut out tips completely, 
Even taking the option off of credit card receipts, Blair said, and issued new hourly wages for everyone. Rachel Lane, Blair's colleague behind the bar, said Casa Bonita is still hiring because they lost staffers during the sudden shift. They sit us down and they forcibly made us sign this contract and said, if you have a problem with it, here's the door, she recalled. A lot of people, they realized, I'm getting scheduled 14 hours a week and that comes to about $300 a check once a week after taxes. And you know, this is Denver. We can't live on that. So a lot of people went and got new jobs. She said some of her co-workers were fired for not signing the contract. She said some didn't sign simply because they had missed the meeting. As of Thursday, Casa Bonita had 339 positions listed on their website, all but one paid with hourly wages. Their site says they have open spots for 68 prep cooks, 61 cooks, 50 bartenders, and 39 hosts. Bartending jobs are now listed at $30 an hour. Cooks can make between $18 and $23 an hour. Prep cooks can earn between $17.27 and $19 an hour. While Blair and Lane are upset about losing lucrative tips, limited hours have become a more immediate concern. In this ongoing soft open, Casa Bonita is only accessible to guests who are on email list who, and who also win a lottery for a meal ticket. It was only open on Thursday, Friday, and Saturday nights until last weekend, when Blair said they opened their first lunch slot. Casa Bonita's website advertises medical, dental, and vision insurance for full-time employees, but Blair said they need to work 30 hours a week to access these benefits, and so far they haven't gotten close. And while the restaurant is fielding guests, Blair said he still hasn't seen a full dinner rush. Each day when he starts his shift, he asks how many customers are booked for the evening. It's always about 900 people, a third of what he said he and his colleagues should be serving during a five-hour dinner rush. Both he and Lane said they have no idea why the period of limited access has lasted so long. I think that there was a little bit of a holdup with the speed at which the kitchen was working for a little while, but it seems like it's go time now, Lane said. If they hadn't made the decisions that they did, then we would be absolutely fully staffed to be open from 11 a.m. to 11 p.m., like they said they were going to be. Lane, who is also a career bartender, said she's dealt with all kinds of bad treatment at work, but this one has hit differently. I've definitely faced every sort of oppression going through it, just being treated like you don't matter, she said, but it's never been such a heavy impact on me financially, you know? You can deal with a certain level of BS if you're collecting a good paycheck and that gets all your bills paid. But if you're not getting any sort of respect or being heard and you're not getting paid well, that's just a whole other situation in itself. Parker and Stone recently gave an interview to 5280, telling the magazine they were excited for their new venture, despite that on paper, it's a very, very bad idea. Only people as rich and silly as Trey and I would do this, Stone told them. This is definitely an indulgence. We want to do it for the state of Colorado. Blair said he doubts the duo have much input on the day-to-day operation. We tried to get in touch with Parker and Stone, leaving messages with their agents and Parker's dad. We'll let you know if they get in touch. In the meantime, Casa Bonita's management 
which is accessible only through their representatives at Feed Media Public Relations, sent only a short statement that they strive to create the best working environment for its employees and will continue to make ourselves available to talk to employees about their concerns. Their representatives did not confirm that there were already positions to replace, nor did they explain why they changed their pay structure. Blair said he hasn't heard much more than that and that none of his managers responded to We Are Team Casa's letter. He might understand if anyone told him and his colleagues anything, he added. I want to see a resolution that works for all parties involved. I feel like, right now, management is just trying to hold their cards close and they're not wanting to disclose certain information, or maybe they don't even have the information, or I'm not sure. But it really boils down to communication and understanding, he told us. Aurora says it won't help Denver police in big moments. What does that mean for day-to-day -day policing? By Tony Gorman. Questions and concerns still remain after Aurora City Council's 5-4 vote to suspend its mutual aid agreement with the city and county of Denver. Aurora's move means the city will not deploy its officers into Denver if the Denver Police Department requests assistance for things like protests or rallies. But beyond that, it's unclear if this would include other major events, like, say, a Nuggets NBA Championship Parade or Pride Fest, or sudden emergencies. Peter Schulte, the public safety client group manager for the Aurora City Attorney's Office, says normal policing should not be affected. The day-to-day -day actions where we have officers that work together along the jurisdictional boundaries of Denver and Aurora would not change. That's the other aspect of the law that deals with those, Schulte said. It does not say that nothing in this resolution shall be deemed to change the legal ability of officers from either jurisdiction to cross over jurisdictional lines on day-to-day -day situations as allowed by other law. The dispute between the two cities stems from the George Floyd protests in 2020 when DPD asked surrounding law enforcement agencies to assist with crowd control. The city and county of Denver reached settlements with 12 protesters totaling $14 million. The settlement didn't include Aurora's officers. Now protesters are suing that city, and Aurora officials want Denver to indemnify their officers to avoid other costs. A Denver police spokesman said in an email statement that the resolution will not affect DPD's approach to day-to-day -day operations and investigations of incidents that overlap our jurisdiction. However, they would not comment further due to the pending lawsuits. But those reassurances did not appease concerns from critics. If I'm a Denver officer and Aurora City Council passes what's essentially a big middle finger to Denver, I'm going to make it pretty challenging to solve some of those day-to-day -day crimes, Aurora Mayor Pro Tem Curtis Gardner, who voted against the measure, said during city council this week. He voted against the measure. Gardner expressed future concerns over the relationship between the two departments. He also pushed for Mayor Mike Kaufman to discuss the issue with Denver Mayor Mike Johnston, who had been sworn into office this week. Johnston's office has not responded to Denver right for comment. What my concern is by passing something like this, unofficially behind the scenes, day-to-day -day police work where a car is stolen in Aurora and ends up in Denver, or a drug case or any other crime that crosses city's borders because we all know criminals and really nobody cares about city borders, he said. 
We have a long-standing, close working relationship with the Denver Police Department and diligently work with their leadership team and officers to keep our communities safe every day. That relationship will not change, Aurora Interim Police Chief Art Acevedo said in a statement Tuesday. In the rare instances of large-scale events that lead to formal requests for large-scale mutual aid responses from Aurora officers, we will continue to assess each of them on an individual, case-by-case basis, Acevedo said. The Aurora Police spokesperson, Sidney Edwards, said the department would not comment further due to pending litigation. The following articles are from Westward. Fairmount Cemetery Now Offering Pet Loss Services by Amber Taufin Losing a family member is never easy, which the team at Fairmount Funeral Home Cemetery and Crematory knows all too well. And when that family member is a beloved pet, sometimes certain services just aren't available in the same way they're provided for humans. That's something that Fairmount is changing with a new suite of services under the Family Pet Loss Care umbrella. This historic cemetery is now offering private pet cremation in a dedicated animal cremation facility, personalized memorialization, and more. The thought had been there for a while, notes Kendra Biggs, president of Fairmount Cemetery. We do our best to provide services to celebrate lives, so now let's serve the whole family. Fairmount has performed about 10 pet cremations since February, and will start offering memorial services in August. Fairmount is the second oldest cemetery in Denver, with an arboretum, multiple chapels and memorials, historic graves, and a wealth of antique rose bushes spread across its 280 acres in the heart of the city. William N. Byers, Robert Speer, Ann Evans, Dr. Justina Ford, Frederick Bonfie, and Ralph Carr are all buried on its grounds. When they were interred, pets were not allowed. But that could change one day, too. According to Briggs, the services offered for animals are designed to be similar to those provided for humans whenever possible. Transport of the diseased pet from a residence to the funeral home is available. The bereaved owners can book a memorial service, viewing, and even pet grief support. A small chapel that holds up to 60 people has been dedicated to pet services. Fairmount will also provide a DVD tribute video, memorial folders, and a guest registration book. Cremations are done one at a time, and families get their own pet's remains returned to them in an urn, along with a keepsake memorial box containing fur clippings, clay and ink paw prints and nose prints, and forget-me-not seeds. We offer garden stones and headstones if people want to put them out in the garden, Briggs says. And while burial services aren't currently available, Fairmont owns some undeveloped land that could one day be used for pet burials, she adds. There will be a grand opening of the facility, the Fairmont Forever Fest, on Saturday, July 29th at Fairmount Funeral Home, 430 South Quebec Street, with a pet blessing at 10 a.m., an unveiling of a monument to service dogs at 11 a.m., and chapel tours at 11.15 a.m. Non-aggressive leash dogs are welcome, says Briggs, who notes that Fairmount hopes to turn this event into an annual pet celebration. 
Denver researchers find new ways that city surroundings worsen people's health by Bonito El Kelty. Watch your weight, doctors say. Quit smoking, quit drinking, start jogging. In Denver, however, these things might not matter as much as we thought. A University of Colorado Denver study published on July 14th outlines how perfectly healthy people can still suffer from an independent risk factor for severe illness when living in areas with residential buildings, air pollution caused by particulate matter, like dust and smoke, and where public transit is accessible. Now we can say that not only having these medical conditions or being elderly or being overweight is a risk, but also living in an area where you have a lot of multifamily buildings living in an area with higher particulate matter in the air are independent risk factors, explains Dr. Sarah Rowan, an expert on public health who is one of the authors of the CU Denver study. We know that a lot of chronic health conditions are more clustered in areas that are lower income overall, and this is the first to really tease out those chronic health conditions, Rowan explains. CU Denver researchers used the study which was published in the science journal PLOS1 to determine why residents in certain neighborhoods often have greater health risks based on where they live. Their research was aimed at better informing city designers and local policymakers, demonstrating that setting often correlates with health in the same way that old age or obesity can. This was especially the case during COVID, which was the basis for the study. During the pandemic, Denver residents who lived in neighborhoods with fewer multifamily homes, townhouses, or apartment buildings, where the air was cleaner, where they could walk or bike without having to cross too many roads, and where there was less public transit, reportedly went to the hospital less often. A person's chances of severe illness are already known to be worse when they're elderly or obese, or if they suffer from chronic illnesses like heart disease or diabetes, which are often found in low-income areas. The CU Denver study found that other risk factors, like where someone lives, also led to severe illness regardless of age, weight, or wealth. Researchers also accounted for race and ethnicity. CU Denver drew from data of more than 18,000 Mile High City residents who were hospitalized for COVID-19 in 2020. Denver neighborhoods like Montbello, Green Valley Ranch, Harvey Park, Westwood, Marlee, and Barnum hosted the biggest clusters of COVID hospitalizations, according to researchers. When vaccines were publicly available, Rowan points out, they first went to people with known risk factors, like being elderly or an essential worker who regularly dealt with exposure to people. That was what we used for deciding who would get the vaccine first because that was who was the most vulnerable, who would get the medication when you have limited supplies, she says. The CU Denver study finds new risk factors that Rowan believes should be a major part of public health policy. More research is needed to understand why these newer location-based risk factors play such a large role in people's health, but part of it is obvious, according to the study. Daily access to public transportation in larger crowds leads to people being in more confined spaces for extended periods of time. However, it is possible that transit riding may have other unidentified health risks, the study says. Rowan notes that living in dense buildings and taking public transit 
are known risk factors for transmitting diseases, but the study focused more on who is getting sicker once they already have the virus, not who gets the virus initially. A lot of these things are risk factors for transmission. As you would expect, a lot of people in a small space, you'll have more transmission, Rowan says. But as for those folks who get the virus, when we think about who's going to get sicker, what's going to predict who's going to get more sick, those are independent risk factors for severe illness as well. People who live in less transit-rich environments, where there's less air pollution, more parks and trails, and more single-family homes are healthy because of their neighborhood and how they are able to take advantage of it, according to the study. Residents will often walk more, avoid chronic illness connected to pollution, and be less affected by the stresses of living in crowded areas. Dr. Jeremy Namath, one of the co-authors of the CU Denver study, says the findings aren't just relevant to COVID. Researchers discovered that certain neighborhoods ultimately have a real-life impact on a person's overall health and well-being. It's not just a story about COVID, Namath says. It's a story about people being exposed to the risk factors that make them more susceptible and have major impacts on their overall well-being. We see high rates of asthma in these neighborhoods and heart disease and cardiovascular conditions in the same neighborhoods where we see high COVID rates. The hope is that experts and officials will see just how much of an effect someone's environment can have on them, especially when looking to the future. By heeding lessons learned from COVID-19, we may see public health and environmental benefits that extend well beyond the improved control of future respiratory pandemics, the study concludes. Vic Vela shares new health struggles in fourth season of Back from Broken, by Katie Cheshire. Colorado Public Radio's Vic Vela is an open book. By now, that should be evident, with his personal story of drug addiction and recovery recounted in the first season of his podcast, Back from Broken. But for the newly launched season, Vela is ready to pull back the curtain even more. In the first season of Back from Broken, there was an episode on my story, but now it's going to be kind of a part two, he tells Westward. It details how I deal with health crises while also trying to stay sober. And there's going to be a lot of Denver Nuggets basketball, so you're going to want to stay tuned for that. Back from Broken, which returned on July 7th, discusses many types of recovery, with its most recent episode featuring the story of a former Major League Baseball player, Drew Robinson, who recovered from a suicide attempt in 2020 and now uses his platform to advocate for more mental health protections. The podcast offers a new episode every Friday. People who've appeared on the show have shared some of their own stories of recovery, discussing everything from drug addiction to eating disorders and also grief. Their candidness has caused an emotional response that Vela hasn't seen from any other project he's worked on, he says. I can't overstate that enough. How mind-blowing that is, Vela says, of the many listeners who've shared stories with him. The longtime deadhead even meet, met someone in the bathroom line at Dead & Company's final run of shows at Folsom Field in Boulder earlier this month, who told him that Back From Broken helped him get sober. Vela, who grew up in Longmont, is a lifelong Nuggets fan and got to ride in a fire truck during the team's NBA championship parade. 
covering the team and seeing it finally capture an NBA title after going nearly five decades without one came at just the right time for him. It was the emotional lift I just needed, he says. It was the most cathartic thing I've ever experienced. I cried like a baby. It was just magic. Vela, who has HIV, is currently in recovery for his addiction to powder and crack cocaine. This winter, he encountered a new health challenge, diabetes, which came on quickly and severely. His eyesight became so blurry that he couldn't even read text messages, and he lost weight rapidly. Bella went to the doctor for routine blood tests related to his HIV treatment and discovered that his blood sugar was so high he was at risk of imminently falling into a diabetic coma. Diabetes runs in my family, he says. It's no surprise that I have diabetes. It's no surprise that I was going to get diabetes. But for it to accelerate from pre-diabetes to full-blown diabetes and into the stratosphere out of nowhere was really alarming. Doctors told Vela that a November 2022 bout with COVID may have contributed to the rapid onset of diabetes in his body. He's been getting back on track and has since added diabetes treatment to his regimen. Reminding himself of the medical advances he has access to that didn't exist before have kept him positive throughout the difficult process. Vela has a sensor on his abdomen that can show him his blood sugar levels at any time, and he's able to treat his HIV with just one pill every night. It is in my recovery, it is in my soul, to always find the gratitude in everything, he says, or at least try to. That's not easy when you're suffering, but when I do that, I do better. He's also grateful that despite his situation, he's managed to maintain his sobriety. Not once did I ever think of hitting a crack pipe, Vela says. And thank God, because you talk about making it worse when you're sick, and you're going through all this shit, and you relapse on top of that. If you stay sober and call your friends, then you have a chance. At the beginning of the pandemic, recovery meetings had to be held remotely, so being able to return to in-person meetings has helped Vela stay the course. The phone call is always important, he says, but there's nothing like sitting in a meeting, hearing someone else's story, sitting or standing around in the circle, saying a group prayer at the end of the meeting. It's riskier than ever to be a drug user, Vela believes, on account of fentanyl being mixed into so many drugs now. He used to mix cocaine and morphine, which is easy to mess up, and can be fatal if done wrong. However, Vela always knew what he was getting himself into, which isn't the case for drug users today. Nowadays with fentanyl, it's not just the heavy everyday addicts who are suffering, he says. It's the people who are in college who are only taking this pill on a set Saturday night, and they don't wake up. It's in cocaine. It's in meth. Also, people are less likely to know their drug dealers today because of the Internet. This gives dealers more leeway to sell a harmful product, Vela says, and he urges people to be selective if they plan to use illegal substances. I'm not one of those Prohibition-era people preaching abstinence, he says. I'm just begging you to go to dealers you know and go to dealers who have a good reputation. In sobriety, which began for him in 2015, Vela has gotten the chance to reintroduce himself to the Mile High City, including places like Pete's Kitchen, where he says he used to often eat his only meal of the day in the wee hours of the morning. He used to frequent the White Spot on Colfax, 
where Tom's starlight is now. A friend of his once shattered the pie case there, and the pair ran away before the cops came, Bella says. Now he's much calmer, but he still loves Denver history and being a patron of local businesses.